You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. So, you know, when you were talking about the as if, right, in Hayek's 1945 paper, that's an important part of the argument, right? Knowledge is dispersed and it's incomplete and no one has this perfect information or perfect knowledge right. that we're talking yeah, about. It's a tin example. Yeah, but people are able to behave as if they knew, they knew everything just by following the price signal because the price incidentally has managed to assimilate all the dispersed information and knowledge out there. It's managed to accommodate everyone's subjective choices and produce a lovely signal, right? That can tell you something about the world and make you act. It can also incentivize you to act as if you had that knowledge. Now, I want to come back to the socialist calculation debate because I think it, it can inform this whole AI question Because what Oscar Langer and Abba Lerner and Fred Taylor and all these guys did, actually, they weren't very socialist in the Marxist sense. They were very socialist in the marginalist sense, right? I Uh I would call them like Waldrasian socialists, if that makes any kind of sense. I I, I don't think anyone has, has used that weird phrase. But what I mean is they thought that, oh, there are these numbers out there. We have some kind of ranking that we can get in these markets outside, we can just borrow all of that, right? And then we can feed that into a computer and that computer is going to tell us something. And what they forgot is that those numbers only tell us as if, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. What was happening was actually happening and everyone knew what they were doing, but they don't actually tell us that because you've, you've removed that context. So can you walk me through what that debate was and then you know, we can yeah. talk about how that feeds into the computation question, yeah. so, which is in your techno-socialism yeah. paper. So let me start by pointing to your first issue, is that the reason why Hayek was so animated in the discussion was because he thought that his liberal friends were making the same mistake that the German audience made a generation earlier. Now, the British at the time that they were writing, the market socialists, their argument, this is like Dickinson, Durbin, Lerner, uh, Langa counts, even though he's Polish, but he's in London at the time that he's doing this. They think that they are socialists in their economics because they're liberal in their politics. Going back to techno-socialism, you know, they they now like to call this cyber this cybernetics, you know, socialism. Under, it never got implemented. It just was like a plan that they were going to do just, you know, but we'll, we'll come back to that in a second. So they thought that they needed to be collectivist in their economics precisely because they wanted to be liberal in their politics. So part of the main thing of the road to serfdom was to show, time out guys, you can't be a collectivist and a Democrat. Your goals of your collectivism will squash your democratic virtues. And that's a tragedy. And that's why, so Hayek's dedication of that book to socialists of all parties is not a like flippant comment. It's a sincere comment. And his whole point is the road to serfdom is a road to tragedy. Yeah. You, could, you could have called it the tragic road, yeah. right, of, of intellectual path. 
And he even says in there, what could be worse than people with high ideals end up by creating hell on earth, you know, by, by pursuing their high ideals. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. Now, the second thing is, is that, so they want to get rid of the monopoly problem. They want to address the business cycle problem, and they want to address the social problem of inequality. Think about the beverage report, right? So the beverage report has the five giants. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the, the propaganda ad. It has government, which is like a tiny midget, and then it has the five giants. And the government with the beverage report is slashing <laughs> the five giants. And the five giants are, you know, poverty, ignorance, squalor, disease, and idleness. So they're going to use these programs to slash this. And, you know, that's 1942, the, that program comes in. But between the 1930s and the 1940s, the Labor Party's trying to, you know, push through this agenda to address, again, they're in the midst of the Great Depression, right? They haven't really gotten out of that. They're just about to enter into a war. And they're, they're very optimistic that they could actually do things the right way. And then that, of course, all comes into, a, 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 you know, an issue. And they knew they couldn't go the full Marxist way. They knew that even going back. Remember, the LSE is a Fabian school. And so they try to use marginalist principles, but they believed in socialist competition. So that's like in the Edward Bellamy book, Looking Backward, where, you know, but I, and the argument is very simple. It's like, look, if my firm, a socialist firm, only has to price equal to cost, not price equal to cost plus markup for profit, then I'm going to outcompete in the competitive marketplace. You know, they're, they're going to go to the restaurant that sells the burger for three rather than for five, right? And so in the end, we'll wake up one day and everyone will be in the future socialist world. And, you know, they had those kind of ideas. And they'll address, you know, and they thought distribution, again, think about all the issues that are involved. They think distribution is a question of politics, not a question of economics. So they're like millions, right? Where the laws of, of production are different from the laws of distribution. Part of the whole thing about the marginalist revolution was to say, no, the size of the pie is a function of how it is you slice up the pie. And so you can have production and distribution. What you can and used to say to it in a class was that, you, you basically, you can't separate out the, the rules. Uh, you know, you can't just pick and choose whatever distributions you want. You have to actually pick rules of the game, which engender a pattern of exchange, production, and distribution. And so this is, you know, th this, is, this lesson had to be learned. And these are all part of things Hayek is trying to get across in the road to serfdom and then eventually in the constitution of liberty as he addresses the move from hot socialism to cold socialism, right? And so, all right. Now, the arguments at that time were using the greatest technology that they had available to them, which was a professionalized bureaucracy that could follow the rules that were given to them by the neoclassical model of market socialism. All right. So they didn't have advanced computing yet like we know of. Right. In fact, even if you look at NASA or whatever, the computers you know, when we first were in the space program, we're individuals. That's what they were called, the computing department. And there were people with their slide rulers and doing all the math calculations. And so, you know, the modern computing technology gets developed. And one of the things that it can do is it can produce against given algorithms very, very quickly. And so that became a mode of optimism that as long as you're dealing with algorithms, you know, you can. So can we just turn society into an algorithm? And when we do that, and if I treat data as given, it does seem to me that, you know, algorithms work. Now, Hayek is quite explicit that the data is never given. 
but they don't read that part, right? They that's read, the as if. Yeah, yeah. And so they, that, that's not the part that they focus on. They focus on the idea that the price, all I have to know is what the price of tin does. And then I can infer from that whether or not, you know, all the rest, I can act appropriately on that. So itself is kind of a grand telecommunication system, which at some sense is an algorithm, right? And so when Hayek responds, which is actually before the use of knowledge in society paper, in like the competitive solution, he argues that, look, what everyone's forgetting is that you have to discover anew each day what is the least cost technology to employ. And if you don't discover it, the guy next to you is going to discover it and, and, and bring it in and compete you away. And so it's very contestable, as you were mentioning yeah. before, and all these things. And it's this generative process that's getting completely lost. When I show up to graduate school, I, I'm excited about this debate. And Don Lavoie, my professor, was working on these issues. And so I wanted to go study with Lavoie. I decided, you know, through a various different process of search, I get into Mort Mason and I decide I'm going to come here to do it. I end up by working for Lavoie. Do you know what the very first thing he gave me to read? It wasn't Mises. It wasn't a Hayek. It wasn't, you know, Michael Polanyi, which, you know, eventually he does. It was Herbert Dreyfus's <laughs> What Computers Can't Do. Oh, and I think wow. it's important. I have a new paper out on SSRN. It's going to come out in the Independent Review. It's a, an appreciation of Lavoie and and I hope people read it. The paper on SSRN is much larger than the one that will actually be published. But Lavoie was a professional computer programmer and actually quite talented computer programmer. He eventually, at the back end of his career, went back to computer simulations and programming. But he gave us the Herbert Dreyfus book on what computers can't do. And then we also had to read like the debate between like Searle and other people, John Searle, the philosopher on what AI could do and all these things like that. You know, I'm reading this stuff and I'm like, what the heck is, why am I doing this when I'm supposed to be learning, you know, microeconomics and macroeconomics and everything. But he had a reason for that, which is he wanted to understand what the nature of the knowledge is, of human knowledge is in the market. Because again, go back to our earlier idea. If markets are about judgments of judgments and appraisement, these are very human characteristics yeah. that computers don't have. It's that the world isn't in an algorithm. We have to actually you know, decide between algorithms or which algorithms we need to modify through combinatorial thinking. And so it goes back again to social learning. And I think that's the key thing. And Asimoglu, in the more recent Twitter thing, he has some papers on social learning. So when you reframe it in terms of social learning, he's like, ah, oh, is that what Hayek's arguing? If that's what Hayek's arguing, that's pretty cool, right? But that's not how I read Hayek, right? That's what he said, you know, is basically saying. But I could see how you could read Hayek that way. And if that's cool, then, you know, that's cool. That's a different kind of argument. Let's talk about that. And so I think, you know, he's a brilliant, he's, you know, he's probably the it factor economist in the world today. And so, you know, it's, it's pretty cool that he's actually thinking about these kind of issues or whatever. But I like to think in terms of this social epistemology distinction between what they call wicked learning environments and kind learning environments. And in our techno-socialism paper, we talk a little bit about this. In kind learning environments, the parameters are fixed. Yeah. So it's more analogous to chess. So the game of chess is fixed. <laughs> There's very strict rules, right? So, you know, a bishop can only move so many ways right? A rook can only move so many ways, right? They're, they're very defined rules and there's only so many spots on the board, okay? And therefore what a computer can do is it can process the algorithms and get through those pretty quickly. But if you try to make a computer play a game in which the parameters are relatively free, 
So if you think about a going back to Lavoie, Lavoie was able to get a, a computer to play Bach, but he couldn't get a computer to play Miles Davis. Yeah. Right. There's a difference there or John Coltrane. Right. There's a, uh, there's a kind of a different. And, and I think we can get computers to play Kasparov, but we can't let, get them to be Ronaldo. Right. And the reason is, is that Ronaldo is constantly dealing with a spin of a ball and the way it comes to him in ways that require him constantly to be agile, adapt, readapt and constantly adjust. And the question you have to ask is, is an entrepreneur more like Kasparov in seeking out a chess move or is it more like, you know, Ronaldo trying to adjust and adapt? You and I both love tennis, right? Roger Federer, one of the things that was amazing about him was his ability to come up with amazing shots in the most improbable yeah. you know, things, especially in his prime. He yeah. just did like amazing things. He, he reintroduced the squash shot in the, in the major tennis, right? That he would pull off. He, he was the one that did the between the legs, you know, before everyone else was doing, he mastered it, right? I was just watching the match the other day with Alcaraz, you know, versus Tsitsipas. And for the first nine tenths of that match, Alcaraz was on a whole other level. And if you look at the shot making that he was doing, it was like off the charts. And it was all him doing like various different variations that required constant adaptation and adjustment to whatever this other guy threw him. The number five player in the world, all right, number five player in the world playing the number one player in the world. And he's about to take him out at the at one of the grand slams in less than, you know, th three games that the guy had at the time, right? He was just blowing him out. And you're watching and you're like in awe because of this adaptation and adjustment. So if I go to MIT's creative lab and I watch their robots play soccer, it doesn't look too good. If I watch them play, you know, I, they can have a dog that jumps from, you know, a, 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 an already known angle, right? So think about it. Like, you know, they have this dog that's going to race, right? So it's going to race, you know, your dogs or whatever. And they have it already known that it's going to land on a surface that's tilted this way or tilted that way. And they program that in because they program in what they already know, what the future is going to hold. And then, of course, the robot can adapt and adjust. But that's the fixed algorithm. Yeah. Imagine if what was happening was like what Marshall puts out in, in the principles book, which is that it's not just the pendulum. Remember what he says about the, the market system? He goes, you have a pendulum and it swings. He says, but now imagine that that pendulum is in a sort of turbulent sea of water. And that's what commercial life is like. Yeah. Now we don't know where the pendulum's going to go because the turbulent seas are pulling it all the way. And the individual that's the judge on the spot, the man on the spot, Hayek's man on the spot, is going to have to make those judgments and appraisements constantly to be able to actually move the market in a certain way. So I think this is, you know, one of the that's not going to be fixed by better and better computers. That requires human intelligence. And this goes back to the Searle point, right? The Chinese in the Chinese, you know, box and language box, there's a difference between syntactic knowledge and semantic knowledge, yeah. the meaning of terms and understanding everything like that. And we as humans, we rely on all those kind of various things in our appraisements and our judgments, and our computers don't have those kind of things. Now, these tools can be extremely good tools. I'm 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 trying to go in a course of self-improvement myself right now. And I have a tool on this thing and I track everything that I do mm -hmm. and it follows me. And it can do all the things and I love it and, and everything like that. And I use it all the time and I can like try to organize things like that. But it's still my judgment 
when I sit down at a restaurant to decide whether I'm going to have a piece of bread or stay gluten-free, right? Or, or whatever, right? And so I have to actually act on that judgment in those appraisements. And, and I think that that human element of us is what makes our economic life so fascinating. Yeah. It's funny you say about the judgment thing. People typically think that I'm a snob because I won't eat Hershey's chocolate yeah. or something like that. And what I constantly tell them is it's not worth being fat for, right? So I'm not getting fat eating that chocolate. I'm going to get fat eating <laughs> a far superior chocolate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm willing to do it, but yeah. this is not worth it. And that is. And for some people, Hershey's chocolate might do the trick, yeah. right? Uh, in, that, in, in some other cases. It's funny that you say that because now that I'm tracking all these things, one of the things that I say to my wife, Rosemary, all the time is like, we'll pick like a food and I'll discover how many calories it's worth. And I'm like, you know, that's not worth that. <laughs> like that, that. I make exactly your argument. I'm like, you know, that's not worth it. Like, you know, that that extra banana doesn't. You know, that's a lot. That's 100 yeah. calories. Like maybe that's going to, you know, I could have something else for that, you know. But to go back, there's a, a really good paper. I'm, I hope I don't butcher his name. He's at University of Pennsylvania. His name is Jesus Fernandez Villavardi. Yes. And he has a great paper that's on a public domain. It's, so it's not like a journal article at the moment on why AI doesn't solve the knowledge yes. problem. But he's working on developing a paper, yeah. a more full-blown paper of these arguments. And he has a paper on AI but he that he did for one of my edited volumes oh, wow. in the International Review of Law and Economics. Yes. But that had to do with the complexity of the world. So this was like yeah. Richard Epstein's Simple Rules for a Complex World yeah. and how AI can't solve the computation problem. Yeah. So so he's like he's got his finger on the pulse of this and he's a very successful, you know, economist and he can talk to these guys on their terms and stuff. And so I'm very hopeful that he'll be able to communicate a lot of ideas to economists that we should be paying attention to what how he's developing these arguments and learn from him on that. I'm very hopeful. Of course I'm not, you know, dogmatic about it. You know, who knows, you know, I might, you know, in the future we might have computers that become you know, fully human or something, right? So and we might have singularity take? moment, you know? So I recently saw the Apple Vision Pro launch, right? And one of the things that I learned was that it can actually, it uses some kind of subliminal messages to figure out what you're going to move next or almost predict how you're going to twitch and move and what you want to see. So it's figured out some part of this cognitive function in a predictive way, right? We also have neural links. We have like all this brain mapping stuff. What would it take to not just solve the computation problem, which is just a question of computing yeah, yeah. power and how much we throw at it, but this aspect of the tacit knowledge, right? And the knowledge that is not institutionally antiseptic and it's subjective and it comes from the individual and their judgment. But what would it take to be able to predict that such that as if we could solve the calculation problem? What would that look like? So, you know, Smith long ago ties a lot to language and our ability to engage in what communication is. And I think communication is a lot more than you know, say information theory had it, which is signal to noise ratio. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's a sender and a receiver and, you know, all that kind of stuff like that. There's a lot more subliminal things to this. There's a book, it's a weird book. It's by a guy named Dan Rose. He was a, a, an anthropologist at University of Pennsylvania. He was a student of Irving Goffman's. And it's a Russell Sage volume. It's called Living the Radical Ethnographic Life. And I met him when I was a fellow at Boston University at Peter Berger's Institute for the Study of Economic Culture 
like years and years ago. And he was a fascinating guy. He, 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 uh, I'll tell you just a very quick story about him. He wrote a book which made his career. It's called Black American Street Life. And he, as a Goffman student, he went and he lived in the South Central Philly and tried to like blend in and do these, you know, his notes and it became a bestseller and everything like that. And then after that, he's at Penn, right? So what he decided to do was write a book. He wrote that book in six years, okay? The next 20 years of his career was in the process of writing a book about living the lifestyle on the main line outside. So he was belonged to cricket clubs and things like that. And when he first did the presentation, I was sitting there and I was like, can you tell me how you got those research grants? Because I want to sign up for that deep ethnographic you know, divide. But anyway, he's a fascinating guy. I love talking to him and I learned so much about him. But one of the things that was fascinating is he, he pointed out the following thing. He goes, when we do most anthropology, a kid goes to college and decides that they want to study, say, the Balinese and cockfight, right? And so then what they do is they start learning the language. And they learn the language when they're 19 years old. And then they study it when they're 19, 20, 21, 22. They go to graduate school, right? They think they know the language. They do field work and things like that. And then they write their dissertation. He says, how long have they known the language, right? They've known the language and lived in that community for a total maybe of like six or seven years. He goes, would we rely on the reports of a seven-year-old to tell us about this community that they're living in, right? No, right? We wouldn't. And, and that's because so much of the human experience is tied up into the subtleties of language. Yeah. And I, that's the key issue, I think. Yeah. So if we go back and we look at, you know, what Smith was arguing about in terms of language and, or what McCloskey's arguing about in terms of language and the way we communicate and the, the, the unspoken spoken, right? Yeah. What, what Hayek calls their tacit, tacit. presuppositions, right? These kind of things. And I think that we would have to somehow be able to render not useful, but explicit these tacit understandings. And if we could do that, then the judgments could be algorithms yeah. rather than these judgment calls that are made. And, and, and the other thing is, is that I do understand that when I use the phrase combinatorial, that it does suggest computation. But there is something weird about combinatorials that are unique to people. So context. Yes, context. Right? <laughs> so here so here's an interesting story. It's outside of economics. I heard it on NPR. I have no idea how robust like this is, but it was Yo-Yo Ma. So one of the things Yo-Yo Ma has decided to do since he's very successful is he gathers every year musicians from all over the world. He'll find like the best bagpipe player and then he'll find the best person like that and they meet in this compound and they try to like come up with music with all these various different you know instruments or whatever who no one would normally put together. So when I was a graduate student, I read this fantastic article about what was found on Jacob Viner's desk when he died. Jacob Viner died, and they had to clear out his desk. And so Jacob Viner had this habit that he had developed all over the years, in which every Friday he went to the library. He didn't do any other thing at the library, but he took notes on the journals. Now, the journals weren't as big as they yeah. are now, but what he did was he'd start with journal A, and then for the next quarter, he'd be reading every Friday until he got to journal Z, yeah. and then the quarter would be up, so then he'd be back at A again. And he took notes, and he took notes on all the articles he found of interest, but he didn't know that the articles existed until he picked out the journal. So instead, what we do now when we have a search engine is we know 
oh, Hayek wrote that paper in 37. Where can I find it on JSTOR, right? You know, Shruti Rajagopalan has this paper. You know, how can I find that on JSTOR, right? And then we get it. And it's amazing. I do this and then an article appears in front of me. But what I don't do is I don't get all the other articles that were in the International Review of Law and Economics or in the JLS that are in the same issue as you. I get your article, right? And so I, I, I don't get the serendipity of like, oh, I'm looking at Shruti's article. But wow, look at that other article. I might, you know, that might be really cool. Let me look at that. And I think part of what science, the discovery of science, is these motions of these aha serendipity moments where I sit there and I think, huh, you know, that guy did that. And that gal did that. And I'm going to take that and that and combine them. And yeah. I'm going to do this. And that's where you come up with a new sort of idea. There's no necessary algorithm that would ever link those two together. That's this human judgment, this human appraisement of how I'm going to try it. And a large part of them fail. You know, again, back to invoking Bolding again, one of the things Bolding used to say to us in class all the time is economic science would make more progress if we published people's wastebaskets, <laughs> right? <laughs> because, you know, you try acts of creativity and they fail. The 20th century had a shift in the way we conceived of the scientist in economics and the discipline of economics. Yeah. And I think we used to do economics from the inside out. And then what happens, we ended up by doing economics from the outside in. And when you do economics from the inside out, you put priority on the clever and creativity of the actors in the economy that you're studying. When you do economics from the outside in, you put the creative and cleverness of the theorist who's trying to control the economy. Yeah. Okay, Because everyone's so, a representative agent, right? Exactly. That's what exactly. we do. Yeah. yeah. And so... This this makes a huge distinction. For example, think about the difference between Hayek's knowledge problem and Lucas's knowledge critique, right? In the in the critique of Keynes. So what Lucas argues in his critique of Keynes is that no agent in the economy doesn't know what the economic theorist knows. Hayek's argument is slightly subtle, slightly different. Hayek's argument is that no economic theorist can know what the agent in the economy knows because the agent in the economy has that knowledge of time and place, which the theorist doesn't have. They only have this general knowledge. What he calls the difference between, you know, you know, knowledge in a system versus knowledge between systems, right? And so there's this subtle distinction, I think, that, that matters when we practice economics from the inside out. So let me give you a, another example. When but I do think Lucas's models are also doing the foil thing, which yeah. we often miss. Yeah, right. I agree with that. He's got the higher critique embedded in it. Yeah, I think I think Lucas is a genius. He transformed economics, which, you know, is an amazing thing to do. It was a huge mistake for the Austrian economists of that generation to not try to communicate with him and view him as a partner in getting a more micro yeah. foundations of macroeconomics. But can I ask you a weird question about Lucas? Yeah. Why is he not in the mainline economics that you draw out between Adam Smith to Vernon Smith? You have a whole bunch of other people in there. Yeah. And when I read it, I didn't think about that. Like it, all the people who belong, who are in it belong there. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. So what is it about Lucas that he doesn't quite belong there? Friedman and Stigler aren't in there either. <laughs> I know. But, yeah, but Lucas is different from... Or Friedman, Becker, because Lucas is not a positivist like Friedman, right? So that's yeah. one point of difference that Lucas so, might belong in this list. So you could, I, I, I could be persuaded, but this is how I would put it, is that what I mean by mainline economics is those individuals that tried to square two basic facts of the world. The, the one fact is that individuals strive to do the best that they can given their situation. We call that the rational choice postulate. Yeah. Now there's, I would make a, 
qualification and say rational choices if the choosers are human. So they're fallible but capable human choosers, not, yeah. not infallible choosers. And they're not maximizing in the sense that we know the full array. Yeah. And, and the second one is Paris gets fed, which is the idea that there's an invisible hand mechanism. So that's the invisible hand. So we have the rational choice postulate and the invisible hand proposition. The question is, how do you square the two together? Now, one way is to deny that they go together. And that tends to be the critics of the market. Yeah. Marx, Veblen, Keynes. And they go at it in various modern behavioral economics. They go at it in various different ways. So I, I actually would highlight Keynes's essay, The End of Laissez-Faire. Yes. Because in that, he explicitly says that there is no invisible hand, basically. He argues there is individuals suffer from weakness of will. So there's no rational actor. The price system doesn't coordinate economic activity. There is no force from above that guarantees that they could coordinate. And there's no force from below. So to Keynes, you're, you're stuck. That's the whole point of an unemployment equilibrium. You're yeah, but, stuck in a disequilibrium, and the only solution out of it is a deus machina who can come in and fix from, from outside the system, which is why you have to be outside the system to come in. All right, so that's one side. The other side goes back to your as-if people, which is what they do is they collapse the one onto the other. Yeah. So, so they, they collapse the one onto the other. So. What I want to say is that all of the people, this goes back to early part of our conversation, all of the individuals that are in what I call the main line derive the invisible hand proposition from the rational postulate, but via institutional analysis. So the institutional analysis becomes a critical part of whether or not you can see the invisible hand of the coordination of Paris getting fed. And that means that you're going to have to have property, contract, and consent. So it's that focus on those individuals. So all those individuals from Adam Smith and David Hume up through the, the French economists like, you know, Bastiat and Say into the late classical economists like Mill into the early neoclassical economists to the Austrians. And then in the post 1950 era to the people like Buchanan, Coase, North, Smith and Eleanor Ostrom. There are, of course, other people. But the reason why those names get names is because they're Nobel Prize winners. And a part of that is sociological. And I'll explain this and very, very quickly. And it's 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 my own like insecurities and weaknesses. When I got out of graduate school, I got the job of a lifetime. I got to work with at, at, at New York University as an assistant professor. It was a dream come true for me. It's where Ludwig von Mises taught. It's where my undergraduate professor got his PhD. It's where my graduate advisor got his PhD. I was going to go work with Israel Kirzner and Mario Rizzo and, and, and Ludwig Lachman, both there and also at various functions that I would go to because I was at NYU and I was an IHS baby, Institute for Humane Studies baby. They had been supporting me forever. I became like their poster child along with David Schmitz. David Schmitz at the time was at Yale. So they used to draw, bring us out all the time to all their seminars and talk to all the students. And I'd meet very bright students like yourself and others that are you know wanting to maybe go and get a good degree. And anyone that was in economics, they would sit there and they would say to me, you know, but you're not really mainstream. Okay. This is what they say. You're not really mainstream. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. Like I study with Ken Boldy and he's the second John Bates Clark medal winner. I study with Jim Buchanan. He's a Nobel prize winner. I study with Gordon Tullock. He actually won, is the distinguished fellow of the American Economic Association. So like, who is it that you studied with? Like I studied with academic royalty in economics. So like, what are we talking about here? Like, why are you making these like comments? 
And one of the things was Bolding always used to make the distinction between mainline economics and, and, and other economics. He has a great essay. It's called After Samuelson, Who Needs Smith? Yeah. And in it, he develops this notion of what he calls the extended present. And his argument is that the evolutionary potential of Adam Smith's science is still there. So Adam Smith is still part of our conversation. Yeah. And that's part of the main line. Okay, so I got this idea from from him. So I used to say like, no, maybe I'm not mainstream, but I'm mainline, right? It's like, and the thought experiment that came to my head was if I was a Martian and I came to the earth in 1780 and I said I was an economist, what would people think that economist believed? If I came to the earth in the middle of the 19th century, what would they think that economists believe? And I know the answer to that, because all you have to do is read like Charles Dickens and his discussion of the philosophical radicals in like hard times, which is Mr. Goddard's school, right? Which is the utilitarians. If I go to, you know, 1890s and I listen to Thorsten Veblen criticize economists and he's like, oh, the lightning calculator of pleasure or pain, that's what an economist believes. So what I started realizing is that, okay, so if I'm a Martian and I come, everyone's going to say an economist believes that Paris gets fed and that individuals are pursuing their self-interest. So, okay, so like, what is it that made these things? It, the only time it ever stops being that is after Keynes. So once we get to Keynes, all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. In fact, in Keynes himself, you still would have been a Marshall, if you were a Martian in Keynes, you still would have thought that's what an economist did because Keynes refers to himself as part of the rogues gallery in economics, right? That he's part of the, the new economics is actually the old economics, which was the criticism of all this other economics. So to me, I was like, okay, so those who sit in the seat of Adam Smith, right? This is Buchanan's line in, yeah. in what should economists do, right? It's those who sit in the seat of Adam Smith. So I was like carrying out that idea. But again, the idea is that individuals are striving to do the best that they can given their circumstances. And the byproduct of all of these individuals striving within a certain institutional context is going to give us this invisible hand of the coordination of the market. That united the economics of that. And that's what I wanted to try to see and then contrast it with people that either deny that or collapse it. Yeah. Because when they collapse it, they forget the institutions that make it possible. And so I don't think that we can have the coordination of economic activity without private property, the rule of law and things like that. So that's why I argue that Hayek's move in that second and third arc of his career is the founding of new institutional economics. But I think Lucas would fit that description, right? Lucas thinks about how Paris gets fed and yeah. Lucas thinks about rational choice very, very seriously. Yeah. And in fact, Lucas has the third element, a very Buchanan-esque element, which is when there is some kind of, you know, let's say like a given structure, an exogenous structure of someone announcing interest rates or someone announcing monetary policy, how does everyone around them adapt, whether it's the right one or the wrong one, right? Yeah. So there is this process that has to take place for people to adapt to government success or government failure in yeah. this case. So I feel like Lucas sort of checks all those boxes. Lucas also comes from sort of the seat of Adam Smith in the second arc of his career, which is the economist. as a growth economist yeah, yeah. and a development economist, because he's very much directly studying those questions. And, you know, when I first read Living Economics, I didn't think about, oh, Lucas belongs here and, and he he's missing. Lucas recently passed away. Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking about, you know, Lucas in a broader context and sort of what we've learned. And I thought again, Lucas, very similar to Adam Smith, is unwilling to treat 
people within the economy like pawns on a chessboard who can sure. just be moved around. I mean, definitely that is part of his whole idea is that, in fact, I remember when I was a graduate student, there was an economist cover and it actually had that. It, they were trying to explain the, the invariance proposition, yeah. you know, because that was like big. Remember that new classical macroeconomics, when it when it first became popular, it was summarized in the invariance proposition. Yeah. Later, it just was a methodology of having these micro foundations, right? And especially when you have the new Keynesians like Larry Summers yeah. and Greg Mankiw and Janet Yellen and others who were trying to show that you could have unemployment models with rational agents, you know, yeah. which was a, a key part of all of this. It's intriguing, by the way. I, I just started reading Ned Phelps's new book on the journey through economic theory, and I'm sure this will make me think about this again. I do agree with you about Lucas and the making an economic miracle. In that paper and his work in that, just like Romer's work, yeah. you know, Romer focuses on charter cities for a reason, which is that that's basically constitutional economics, right? Yeah. Asimoglu and Robinson, you know, want us to think about institutions and constitutions as well. And and so again, that that work is all pushing in that way. Schleifer in the work that he did in the 90s on law and finance, very much, you know, in those, but I don't mention those guys. My mistake, you know, probably. and, and No, and it's interesting because there are points when the mainline and mainstream converge right. and there are points when it they diverges. diverge. Right. And the Nobel Prizes are these weird moments when, you know, suddenly the mainstream will acknowledge. Right. And so that drove a lot of the naming yeah. is that in the modern idea, I was, and those guys haven't won yet. They'll yeah. win and then I'll... I'll take credit for him or whatever. I think the but, next uh, edition should have Lucas. Yeah, I, 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 I'm going to think about that, actually. It's a very good idea, especially Romer, I think. Too, yeah, because, Romer, too. Because even in Romer's Nobel address, he emphasizes this issue about the move towards treating agents with novelty and creativity. And, and I've been thinking about that a lot because in our community, there is, again, in the Kosian kind of world, we think about someone like Stephen Chung. And, you know, he has this wonderful piece called The Fable of the Bees, right? Yeah. And he explains this kind of idea. And a lot of people, what they focus on is the end product, yeah. which is that an efficient contract was formed. And I want to try to say to everyone, okay, I get it, that an efficient contract, that's amazing. But why don't we recognize the following thing? One, step one, there must have been a massive externality that they yeah. didn't recognize to begin with. Step two, Creative and clever people came up with solution. Yeah. And it took them a while to get that solution to work out. But what we should focus on is not so much that they came up with a solution that was at one point optimal, but that they were coming up with a solution and what conditions allowed them to negotiate around to do that. Yeah. And so if you do the Kosian interpretation of Chung, you end up with the focus on prior to the contract, all the activity that led to the contract. Yeah. And to me, that's where all the action is in economics. And I really like this recent article by Brian Author called Economics and Nouns, Economics and Verbs. And his argument is that for us to make progress in the next generation of economic theory, we have to move from an economics of nouns, which is an economics of states of affairs, to an economics of verbs, which is about activity. Yeah. And to me, that's what we need to actually embrace. And he acknowledges that we already have a body of economic theory that works with verbs. That's called Austrian economics. And so to me, I think that's what we need to you know, work on. But if we're going to be doing that economics of activity, we have to remember that activity doesn't take place inside of a vacuum. Yeah. It always takes place inside of what? As institutional context. And that institutional context structures our incentives. Yeah. And we shouldn't deny that. But it more importantly controls 
and dictates the flow and quality of the information and knowledge that we can discover and work with. And so by focusing on that, so let me just say one last thing about this knowledge issue. One way to think about the great mainline economists, Buchanan, Hayek, Coase, Ostrom, Vernon Smith, is that they look at the world through, in many ways, a neoclassical prism. Actors are choosing on the margin against constraints, right? Yeah. And, and so it's not like they're saying, you know, <laughs> there's yeah. no constraints or there's no margins or whatever, right? They're choosing on, on the margin again, against the world of given constraints, right? They're facing these trade-offs. But what they do is they slightly always twist the prism. Yeah. And they twist the prism differently than what, say, you would get in a standard graduate level textbook variant. Yeah. And by twisting that prism, it opens up these new lights. Yeah. And so Eleanor makes us think about collective action problems in a way that when I was Mantor Olson or Garrett Hardin, I'm in a remorseless trap and I can't get out of it, but she twists it. And all of a sudden I can get out of it by various different creative and clever actors inside of my model doing yeah. things. And Eleanor is a fascinating example. At the very end of her book, she has a, a section. So it was 214 and following in the governing the commons. And it's called the challenge towards scholarship that her position takes. And the main idea is that she says, we don't want to have an economics about governing over. We need to have an economics that's suited for governing with. Yeah. And then she goes through a whole thing about self-governing democratic societies. And she ends up at the end, not talking about common pool resources, but instead self-governing democratic societies and the nature of those and Tocqueville and Madison and, and, and Hobbes and Smith and all these people like that. And that's how she ends her book. And so to me, what that tells us is that what her book was about was test bedding democratic self-governance within a really hairy problem, which is collective action faced with a, with a common pool resource or basically fugitive resources like the fisheries or whatever. And how is it that individuals come to solve their problems themselves from inside of the model themselves? And to, so to me, I think that's just like, you know, we need more of that kind of stuff and more embracing of that. And I think that's different than all the people that do the economics. But yeah. I, I, I'll, I'm going to think about this Lucas thing a lot. Thank so you. One thing, one way I would I would frame that question is what do each of these theorists consider endogenous to the model versus exogenous to the model, right? So you do have people who sit on the seat of Adam Smith, like someone like Kersner, for instance, right. right? Who still thinks institutions are given and fixed, not because he actually thinks institutions don't change or something like that, but for what he's studying, yeah, right, which is the yeah. process within the market. Yeah. Institutions are given and fixed, and we're going to take that as given and fixed, and then we're going to do what economists do, right? Now, if you were to introduce a slightly different kind of Austrian economist, you know, if you bring in Lachman, right, or Mario Rizzo, they sort of made their career out of endogenizing the institutions that many Austrians before them took as given and fixed, right? Yeah, so they were yeah. very Hayekian in that sense, right? Now, if you look at what, for instance, Buchanan has done, right, he's endogenized a whole number of institutions, including lawmaking, but what is given to us is the constitution. Because we did something in the constitution making, we got this moment, we got yeah, the yeah. constitution, then, you know, the relatively absolute, absolute, right? That's yeah. relatively given and fixed. Now, Ostrom goes one step further, yeah. right? So we don't have this relatively given or exogenous and fixed constitution. In fact, part of solving the specific problem 
includes solving that bigger constitutional problem. They're actually the same thing to Eleanor Ostrom. So she also endogenizes that element, which, you know, Buchanan is sort of left on yeah. the table as exogenous. So I honestly think of it as really where they are placing the model. I mean, economists, until very recently, preferences are given and fixed, yeah. right? And no human being's preferences are actually given and fixed. Yeah. Yeah. And it's only very recently, and Buchanan is part of that, he starts endogenizing preference formation in sure. some sense, right? And then behavioral economists are like, no, 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 preferences are given and fixed, and that's what they should look like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. a normative benchmark. Yeah. So that's sort of how I think about, you know, reframing the mainline and mainstream economics. Yeah, I, and if I go with this, I think Lucas and, you know, then even Schelling belongs, sure. right? Schelling Why definitely belongs. Yeah, so yeah. Schelling belongs. And and Romer, you know, the weird thing about Romer is, I feel like he's the one who's really answering the original Adam Smith question of, you know, what makes certain places poor yeah. versus rich, right? Wherever I look, and I'm thinking about this from a development economics point of view, everything that people are trying to engineer right, into people having better lives, right, people not living in poverty and squalor and all the things you mentioned. Romer has all the places that look good have figured out, yeah. right, the endogenous growth theory. Yeah, yeah. Something is working there. All the ideas are sort of cross-pollinating, yeah. right, or as Matt Ridley would say, ideas are having sex. Where all the good places look like that and all the places in decline yeah, no. yeah, yeah. <laughs> looks slightly different. I think that so just to start with the issue with Romer, I think that one of the key issues is that his notions of increasing returns is Smithian, yes. not Ricardian. Yes. And most people don't make that distinction. They just go with Ricardian yeah. increasing returns, and that's the yeah. way they think about these things. And so they don't get the point of the generalized increasing returns, which, of course, Buchanan emphasized as well with his work with, with Yoon. And so that's like a key issue. How do, we, how do we work with that kind of idea? I think if we go back to my earlier discussion about the move from logically soundness to logical validity, yeah. that one of the issues that happened was with logical validity, we ended up by having the notion that we could have, that abstractions entailed unrealism. Yeah. So we allowed for unrealism of assumptions. This is one of Friedman's mistakes, because even go back and, and, and look at the debate between Friedman and, and Samuelson in the AER, where Samuelson defends the realism of assumptions. Yeah. But Friedman unleashed economists by saying it doesn't matter, you can have these unrealistic. And I think that's a huge issue because I think that in the Austrians, they deal with abstractions, but they're realistic. Yeah. So they're not unrealistic abstractions, they're realistic abstractions, which hold their feet to the fire of the world in some sense. And I think that's important. The other thing I just wanted to mention to you about the endogenizing of, of institutions is, Buchanan has this great passage in the beginning of the demand and supply of public goods in which he argues that economists can no longer be content treating the institutional framework as fixed and given, yeah. but they must derive the institutional framework itself. And then he adds, from the ordinary behavioral assumptions of the economists themselves. Yeah. And I think the way he chose to do that was his constitutional economic. Yeah. And that's why he gets to all of the things. Now, the reason why he does the veil of ignorance and those kind of issues. That goes back to an issue with Knight, which has to do draining us of having motivated reasoners, because motivated reasoners will undermine the voluntary process of it all. So instead, he wants to have you know various different efforts. But the difference between him and Ostrom in that regard is that that exercise, the veil of ignorance, 
allows him to have rational discourse yeah. without any squabbling. Ostrom, if you listen to her, there's a great movie. She does an interview. She was a wonderful human being, just absolutely a wonderful yeah. person. She came and, and did her Nobel laureate tour, yeah, starting yeah, she, with Mason when yeah. I was a graduate student. Yeah, that's so and, you remember. She was yeah, just like and this. she drank scotch with all of us, yes. and she was so fun and yeah. so cool, but also just so involved in what every single person was. Yeah, when on. you were talking to her, you thought you were, you know, she made you feel like you're a million bucks. And, she made us uh, feel human. She's just amazing. But like what she does, she laughs and she says, you know what we found when we studied, you know, people making decisions? We found that they quarrel. <laughs> they fight all the time. And she chuckles about it. Yeah. And she says they have to figure out a way. So in my book, Struggle for a Better World, I take that idea of that conflict. Wagner, yeah. of course, has worked with this conflict issue as well. Dick Wagner is a yeah. Buchanan student, your teacher or whatever. He's brilliant. But I use this idea of what I call sharp objects. Now, I will admit it comes from, you know, watching the HBO show on, on sharp objects. I'm not that brilliant, but I, I, you know, I thought, hey, that's pretty cool. These notions that we interact in the world in sharp objects. And what happens is, is that we have to figure out a way that our institutions dull the edges of the objects, because in our conflicts with one another, if they're not dulled, what we're going to do is we're going to have mortal wounds. Yeah. But what instead, if they're dulled, we're going to end up by getting scraped and bruised, but we'll still be able to cooperate with one another. Yeah. And I thought this is an analogy for the way in which we interact in a pluralistic society. That comes from Eleanor, because we're wrestling over these scarcities and, and you know, who has what, when and where, and we're, we're arguing over these things. And also who's and, included and excluded and, from the exactly. decision making, and, and, right? And that has to be a constant conversation and 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 negotiated and, and adjudicated all the time. Power relations are all involved in that. Think about all the things that she allows us to open up into that space of institutional analysis, yeah. which is different from the more rarefied discussion of institutions that you see in other economies. Another way to think about it is they all fill in gaps of one another. Yeah. So you start with some and they're, they, they, they get there, but there's a gap. And then the next person picks up their framework and then fills in that gap. Hayek gives us a program and they build on that and they, you know, and I think again, you know, to go back about Hayekian ideas, what you're talking about is the evolution of this various arc. So he goes, economics is coordination problem, the abuse of reason project, the restatement of liberalism, and then philosophical anthropology. Yeah. And what happens in the philosophical anthropology is pushing the co-evolution and spontaneous order story farther and farther into yeah. all of us. So the origins of our mores yeah. are in fact in these you know, spontaneous orders. And so he was pushing that agenda as far as he could run it. I think there's so much richness in the discussion of political economy and social philosophy yeah. that these thinkers have that we can learn from and continually to push out. And again, it's not about the thinker. I think that's a mistake. It's about the concepts the, that these thinkers work with. And it's the context yeah. that they choose to bring into the model or leave out of yeah. the model. And so we have to make you know, these, these things alive for us today. The young people that are listening to the show here, whether or not they're overseas or here in the States or whatever, they have to learn how to make these ideas speak to them today and speak to their students, yeah. right? And, you know, that's a key thing. If I could stress again, you know, I think that the key thing about mainline economics when it's taught right is that it's a tool for the curious. Yeah. It's, it, economics is a tool of social understanding yeah. for those who are curious about how the world works. It is not a tool for social control by those who want to, you know, engineer the system. You know, Adam Smith used just a simple phrase of the man of systems. Yeah. But he also says that 
It's nowhere as dangerous as in the man who fancies himself to presume that he could, in fact, control the lives of others. Menger referred to it as Prussian police science. <laughs> when, when, we, when we teach economics as a tool of social control, yeah. we're teaching economics as Prussian police science. When we teach economics as a tool of social understanding, then we're sort of teaching economics as a branch of moral philosophy. And, you know, there's also the in-between. We think we are teaching economics the right way, but can, it can become an instrument of social control if we get it wrong, which is what the whole AI and computation question yeah. tells me. That if you're really thinking that people's tacit knowledge doesn't matter, and it's just a matter of, you know, given data or information that now we have this supercomputer that can resolve, not only have we gotten the model of how the real world works or the process works wrong, we can also do a lot of damage, yeah, right? Yeah. Let, me, let me, I mean, maybe this might give a, a good example. You know, George Soros made billions of dollars as an international currency trader. Yes, and bet against the Bank of England famously. Yeah, and, and one of his policy prescription in his retirement has been that he wants to have a world central bank yeah. because he wants to get rid of the spread in international currencies that he arbitraged and made so much money on. Yeah. And I think that, that it's really counterintuitive to a guy like him that his very behavior was the thing that stabilized markets, right? It was that he and others were in fact arbitraging that actually gave the market its order. And if we didn't do that, how the hell is the central bank going to know how to actually you know, do things? Now, you know. And an alternate view of the world which can achieve the same thing is sort of lots of decentralized banks, right? Which yeah. is the Hayekian view. Right. Like yeah. you have lots of denationalization, right? right? You have lots of different currencies. And now you have all the crypto guys who come in and who yeah. say, oh, we can do the same thing, yeah. right? And Not so controlled by an individual. You know, that's the, that's the thing that so many people that don't get the kind of mainline idea miss. You know, they don't, they miss the benefits of the competitive process of yeah. contestation. Yeah. They miss it in terms of experts, that experts need to be contested. It's not, you know, like Hayek is a criticism. He says, he quotes Hume. He says he's going to use reason to whittle down the claims of reason. Yeah. He's not denying reason. Yeah. He's using reason to whittle down the claims of reason so that we can have reasonable reason. <laughs> and it's the same thing with experts. No one here is an anti-expert. Yeah. What they want is they're anti- monopoly of experts. And so we don't want to concentrate the power in the hands of a few, because if we concentrate the power in the hands of a few, and even a sincere error by the hands of a few can threaten the entire system, it's a system we can't afford. Yeah. So we need to have constant contestation and built-in resiliency and you know tests and whatnot. And that's this institutional design question. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't like the decentralized process stuff that we talk about. Because there is some attraction for you. We want everything universally to be uniform. And when there are lots of decentralized actors and we don't know exactly what they know and we don't know exactly what they think and we don't know exactly what context they inhabit, that makes people very nervous. Because if we don't know it all, then how can we you know, intervene and sort of yeah. create certain uniform outcomes for them? Right. So in, in our pursuit for uniformity of outcome or what we try to call, you know, this kind of equality that everyone is looking for, I think the appreciation for diversity and decentralization and sort of pluralism gets taken away. Like sure. that's the that's the institutional or intellectual trade off that we're constantly making at the political level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Scott Page, you know, has these great you know models where he tests the idea of diversity. 
and the power of diversity because it gives us creativity, novelty, and yeah. whatnot that we otherwise wouldn't have if it wasn't there, right? Yeah. And it's the same reason why you want to have different voices. You want to test your ideas out in different environments and everything like that. You know, it's kind of, it, it, it's a very fascinating issue to think about what generates a creative society. So Hayek has in the Constitutional Liberty, one of my favorite chapters is a chapter called The Creative Powers of a Free Civilization. Yes. And if you read that chapter, he doesn't tell you that he knows what the creative society would ever give us. In fact, it's the opposite. Yeah. Right. It's it's that what it does is we maximize the chances for for accidents yeah. to give us things that we didn't know we wanted. But now we know we want. Yeah. And he actually quotes in there, you know, Lewis, who was one of his students at the LSE, the, the first black man to win the Nobel Prize in economics. And a professor, you know, at LSE and, and Sir Arthur Lewis, you know, he, he in that in that discussion that Hayek has there, it's all about innovation and how innovation comes from minorities. Yeah, because minorities see things differently than others see it. So you're so so a fish doesn't recognize the water that it swims in. So if I'm a native, if I'm a majority, I don't recognize what the opportunities might be. But I come in and I'm a minority and I'm blocked off and necessity is the mother of invention. And I'm like, you know what? That's pretty cool. Yeah. And I come in there and I do that. And I think that 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 kind of permissionless innovation, that kind of system that is constantly in churning, it's upsetting to people because they want stability. But at the same time, it's the source of why it is that we have all the cornucopia of beautiful things that we have. Yeah. And most of human history, in fact, didn't have that. It was like this and then whoop, like this. And the question is, what just happened here that unleashed this power of a free civilization? Yeah, and I think Hayek sums that up beautifully in the title because it's individualism and economic order. So you yeah. get the order, yeah. but you also get the individualism. In fact, you get the order because of, of the, the individualism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But thank you so much for doing this, Pete. This was such a pleasure. It oh, feels like I'm back in your classroom. No, it was it's amazing a lot of fun. to have this conversation with you and I. I learn a lot and I'm going to I'm going to now rethink some of my characterizations and take into account some other people. I think it's a great opportunity for the next edition. Yeah, yeah. And and we know that the second edition is now not I mean if if there's another chapter on Lucas and Romer and you know Schelling then the first one can't compete with it. As, <laughs> exactly. So you can not only create a new product but you can also make more money out of this. So no, no. this was such a pleasure. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.